A very good morning to you. It's great to see you all here this morning. If you're new or welcome, uh, if you're new or visiting, you're very welcome. Uh, do go and grab um, some information from the welcome desk over there. Uh, I found this picture. It's an old picture, actually, of James Kite from when he was a student, um, and I, I couldn't I couldn't resist it. It actually looks very much like you, uh, which is probably why you're so keen on it. Um, James has been posting really rude pictures, uh, really rude statements of, um, not rude pictures, rude statements uh, on Facebook. A couple of weeks ago, we, um, we were looking at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and kind of some of the ways in which we handle temptation, particularly around um, where that assault comes against our identity, that sense of um, who we are. And I was actually planning on speaking on something else today, but I felt like the Holy Spirit uh, said that we were to revisit this whole arena and area of identity. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying... I need to be baptized by you, and yet do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for your presence here. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate the scriptures. You'd bring these, the truths that are held within the scriptures, you'd bring those things alive to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, this situation that we've got here with Jesus' baptism, this is just before Jesus, I'm kind of going backwards, this is just before Jesus is led off into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil, the things that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. And what happens is that Jesus has this incredible encounter with the Father at his baptism. And just as we said a couple of weeks ago, what you've got in the temptation in the desert is the enemy trying to undermine Jesus around this whole area of his identity. Do you remember we talked about how he's, the enemy is trying to get at the very core of who are you really? You know, um, Whereas this encounter that Jesus has at his baptism is his heavenly father publicly affirming Jesus in the arena of his identity. This is who you are, says the Father, and what we see from this is Jesus gets his Jesus is getting his sense of identity. Jesus is getting his sense of who he really is from heaven, and and, and in this case, the baptism, most more literally, from the voice of the Father. And that brings us this morning to a question, which is, where are we getting our sense of? our identity from where are we getting our sense of self from where are we getting our sense of who we are from is it from heaven is it from the voice of the father or is it from somewhere maybe a bit closer to earth and the truth be told 
for many of us, our identity, our sense of self, our sense of who we are, is grounded uh, not at all in heaven, but in things that are much closer to home. A whole host of us get our sense of identity, our identity from our performance. I am what I do. You know, what's the first question that we tend to ask people we don't know? You know, you're at a drinks party or something. Um, most often we go up to them and say, so what do you do? And, you know, it's not a bad question. It's just that often the response that we get is sort of like a bit of a potted uh, CV. And rather than hearing anything about who these people actually are, or even really what they're actually doing, um, we get... Um, People feel some kind of pressure to to sort of try and uh, impress one another. And and obviously because we're British, you know, we try and do it in a very self-deprecating and self-effacing and uh, understated kind of way. But if you're anything like me, you find yourself in that situation and there's this, this feeling that I need to embellish a little bit about what I do to make myself sound a little bit more interesting than I think I really am. In his book, The Burnout Society, a theologian, Byung-Chul Han, uh, he writes this. He says, symptoms of depression, feelings of insecurity, inferiority, fear of failure, these are all the hallmarks of our late modern performance society. And even though all of us know that it's crippling us, so many of us get our sense of who we are from our performance, from what we do. Now, for a whole bunch of other people, that's not it at all. For other people, they get their sense of their identity from uh, possessions. You know, I I am what I have. I I, I am what I wear. I am what phone I have in my pocket. I am what car I drive. We live in a materialistic society. And we love, all of it. we love accumulating stuff. But just this kind of craving for all of this stuff that we are accumulating more and more of, uh, for some of us, has become the source of our identity. For lots of people, things are no longer just things. These are things that have come to define us. And we think, tell us lots of things about who we really are. For lots of other people, uh, those aren't issues for them at all. For, for some people, their identity is rooted in their pleasure. You know, I am what I want. As you know, one of the more sensitive issues we're having to deal with at the moment is around the whole area and arena of sexuality. But some people are, they literally identify and define who they are based solely on their sexual orientation. And while our sexuality is really important, you know, it's a fundamental part of our humanity, the question really we need to be asking is, is it the most fundamental part of who you are? Is it the most fundamental foundational thing about you? Is it who you are? Because we all have desires, whether it's an intimate desire for love or romance or sex or something else. And yes, of course, those desires are true of you. They are true of us. But are they the truest thing about you? Are they the truest thing about who you are? Uh, Still other people get their identity from popularity. You know, I am what other people think of me. Do you ever find yourself walking into a room and you, you feel, before you've even walked to the room, there's massive pressure to be responded to in a certain way, to be liked, to maybe present an image of yourself that maybe you really know deep down that you're not. You want to be look better looking than perhaps you feel like you are. You want to be more, you want to appear more intelligent than perhaps you feel that you really are. You want to come across as better educated. And there's, there's all this pressure to project an image of ourselves that doesn't really quite correlate with our inner reality. 
You know, just go back over your, those of you who do these things, you know, your Facebook posts, your Instagram posts, your, your, your Twitter posts, and just look back over them and have a think about what you are hoping those things are saying about who you are. What kind of image are you wanting people to, to see and perceive about you? Does our sense of emotional well-being uh, rise or fall on the number of likes that we get or the number of Facebook birthday messages we got this year in comparison to last year? Are we trying to find our sense of identity and purpose by how popular we think uh, we are or by what other people think or by what we think other people think of us? The point is this, that there are all sorts of places where we get our sense of who we really are from. For some it's performance, for some it's possessions, for some it's pleasure, for some it's popularity, and that is by no means, as you know, an exhaustive list. The danger with all of this, obviously, is if we are getting our sense of self and our identity from any or all of these places, what are we going to do if and when they aren't there anymore? You know, what are we left with? Then who am I? You know, if we get our sense of self from what we do, what happens if I lose my job? If I get my sense of self from all the things that I own, what happens if I lose my job and then I have to sell all the things that I own and all the things that I've accumulated to feed myself and so I have to get rid of the car and the house and the da-da-da-da-da? Who am I? Who are we without all of the stuff? If we get our sense of self from what other people think of us, what happens if we like, put on some weight? Or start, I don't know, losing our hair? careful you know it's painful like uh who am i without my hair i genuinely tell you i think one of the biggest identity crises i went through because i did used to have hair right was when i started losing my hair i was like ah, i don't know what like who am i now it's a really good question who are we without hair basically and, and what that's about is basically who are we when we are no longer who we think we used to be And just in case you weren't aware, that's called getting older. (laughs) Who are you without? And you just fill in the blank. My point is all of these identities in the language of Jesus are actually shifting sands. Which is why one of the most important things that we can be doing as followers of Jesus is digging into the ways in which we learn to get our identity, our sense of self, our sense of who we really are from heaven from the voice of the Father and not from earth. So Jesus has this encounter. He's got this moment in the Jordan, you know, and it would be amazing. Wouldn't it be amazing if, you know, you're in the bath and suddenly like a dove from heaven alights on your head. And, you know, there's this booming voice saying, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. In you I am well pleased. You know, if we all had that experience, that would be Amazing. It would be a little bit freaky, uh, but it would be amazing. But our tendency sometimes, I think, when we read this story about Jesus and his baptism is to sort of dismiss the whole encounter as being about Jesus and, very nice, but therefore not about us. You know, it doesn't actually apply to little old me. Well, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Now, Ephesians, okay, is like the most amazing book on the subject of identity. If you want to discover more about your true identity, just literally read Ephesians every single day for the rest of your lives, okay? Challenge set, homework settled. I just want to read a bit of uh, Ephesians chapter 1 over you, and can I encourage you, um, 
just settle in. Like, I would encourage you to close your eyes, um, take a deep breath, and just allow the Word of God to minister to you. Don't try and kind of analyze it. Don't try and kind of work out what it really means. Just allow the Word of God to minister to you as I read it, okay? This is Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in southwest London Vineyard. Doesn't say that. Says Ephesus. The faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Like, how rich is that? Like, it's enough to keep you going for a while. There's so much here, and we're going to go way over time today, I promise you, but just stick with me. The key thing here, the key phrase in chapter 1, right, is this phrase, in Christ. In Christ. It's used over like 150 times in the New Testament. It's um, almost entirely used by Paul. And it's like Paul's favorite way of talking about our identity, his favorite way of talking about who we really are. And in baptism, we're celebrating baptisms on Easter Sunday, okay, and Baptism is like one of the most important things that we can do as followers of Jesus as a public demonstration of our faith, having given our lives to Jesus. So if you haven't been baptized or you want to be baptized again because you were baptized as a baby, we would love to baptize you. Uh, come and talk to me or the team afterwards. Um, we would love to. It would be a real honor to celebrate that with you. But when we are baptized, when you're baptized into the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, when you go under the waters of baptism, and when you come up out of the waters of baptism, as you've metaphorically joined with Jesus in his death by going under the water, and joined with Jesus in his resurrection by coming up out of the water, in that moment, we are what theologians call incorporated into union with Christ Jesus. That's what happens. 
It's like a picture of that kind of incorporation into union with Christ. And what that essentially means is that everything that is true about Jesus Christ is now true about you. Paul puts it like this in Galatians 3. He says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. What happens is we are baptized in Christ. We put on these clothes. We put on Jesus. We are incorporated into union with him. N.T. Wright, theologian, puts it like this. When Paul speaks of us as being in Christ, the center of what he means is that the king represents his people so that what happens to him happens to them. And what is true of him becomes true of them. David was representing Israel. He'd already been anointed as king. And it wasn't long after his victory before people realized that he, David, was the one who would lead Israel into God's future. So with us, Jesus has won the decisive victory over the oldest and darkest enemy of all. And if we are in him, if we are in the king, if we are in Christ Jesus, we shall discover step by step what that means. And this image, this picture that N.T. Wright uses of David is a really powerful one. You're familiar with the story of David. David fights Goliath. What we often don't realize about that story is that David's home village right, was like the next village along on the road. And so meaning, what that means is if David hadn't killed Goliath, like his friends and his family and everyone that he grew up with, they were all next. And after they'd been obliterated and wiped out, then the rest of David's tribe was next. They were going to be obliterated and wiped out. And after David's tribe had been wiped out, what was next was the whole of Israel. They were next. They were going to get wiped out. So in that moment, what happens is David's victory against Goliath becomes all of Israel's victory. The freedom that David wins in that moment when he beats Goliath becomes all of Israel's freedom. The kingdom that is established in that moment, the rule and reign of David that is established in that moment when he he defeats Goliath becomes the kingdom that the whole of Israel can join in with and participate in. And in exactly the same way, through Jesus Christ, through his victory, and that's what the cross and the resurrection are all about, it is nothing short of the defeat of hell itself. And in that moment, his victory has become our victory. The freedom that he has won on the cross and through the resurrection has become our freedom. The kingdom, the rule and the reign of the king of kings and the lord of lords that was established in that moment has become the kingdom that we can all participate in. Karl Barth puts it like this. Hang in there with me. Christians are now quite briefly described as those in Christ Jesus, or usually even more simply as in Christ. And they are described in this way because they are in him. And they are in him because Christ has adopted them into unity with his being. Which means, by virtue of their baptism, they have put him on like a covering garment. Galatians 3. As they are in Christ, they acquire and have a direct share in what God first and supremely is in him. What God what was done by God for the world and therefore for them in him and what is assigned and given to them by God in him. 
And the basic idea that theologians love to make sound incredibly complicated by using endless prepositions uh, is actually quite simple. And it is this. What is true about Christ is now true about you. What is true about Christ is, is now true about you. When God sees you, he sees you incorporated into unity with Christ Jesus. He sees you clothed in Christ. Even more importantly for us right now, he sees that as your true identity. Um, Colossians 3 describes it. It says, for you, for, you, for you died. You died. When you gave your life to Jesus, you died. But your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Your life is now hidden. You are enclosed. You are dressed. You are robed in Jesus. This has all kinds of implications for discovering our true identity. Just look back at some of the identity statements that we've just read from Ephesians chapter 1. All of which are true of who you are because you are in Christ. And it's a phrase that's used on every single line. Okay? So verse 3. This is true of who we are in Christ Jesus. Verse 3. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4. You were chosen before the creation of the world. You are holy. You are blameless in his sight. Verse 5, you are loved. You have been predestined. You have been adopted as a son or a daughter. You are in God's pleasure and in God's will. Verse 6, you are to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 7, you have been redeemed. You are forgiven. You are recipients of God's grace. Verse 9, you understand the mystery of his will. Verse 11, you are chosen. You are predestined. Again, just in case you missed it like the first time around. Verse 12, you are for the praise of his glory. Verse 13, you are included. You have been saved. Verse 14 you have been sealed with the holy spirit you are recipients of an inheritance you are god's possession you are for the third time to the praise of his glory and that's just like the opening sentences he goes on like that for three more chapters he talks about being clothed in righteousness at one point he says you are god's poetry he says that he has good works waiting for you ahead he says that you've been saved by grace you've been made alive in christ you are part of a whole new humanity you are citizens of god's kingdom you are members of his household and on and on and on and on this is who you are in christ this is who we really are this is our true identity. You bet. You flipping bet. Because the trouble with this is, as was just demonstrated beautifully by you all, we hear it and we love it and something, something in our hearts says, I, 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 that right, that, that feels right, that like, that is who I, I have a longing and a yearning for that. It's called the kingdom of God. It's called heaven because it's pointing to who we are in Christ. But something happens to us in that moment and we long for it and we yearn for it and our hearts begin to race at the prospect of it. But then suddenly we kind of come crashing back down to earth and the reality of it is really different because we say, well, you know, actually that might be true of you or I can see how that's true of them, but it's not true of me. 
Because if only you knew who I really was, you know, what I'm really like, you'd know that none of that could be true because I'm really not holy. So we say to ourselves, we know I've, I've been sleeping with my girlfriend, so do you know what? I'm not, I'm not blameless. Or we say, you know, well, you know, actually, last night I was up late masturbating to porn, so I'm not holy. You know, we say to ourselves, I'm not chosen, I'm not predestined, I'm not even sure I even know what that word means. So these things can't be true of me. Well, this is who you are in Christ. This is the truth about who we are in Christ. Remember that everything that is true about Christ is now true about you. Christ is blameless, so guess what? If you are in Christ, you too are blameless. Christ is holy, so if you are in Christ, you too are holy. And this isn't just true of who you are theologically. This is becoming true of who you are in reality. And this is just classic vineyard stuff, the vineyard stuff that we talk around about all the time, about the now and the not yet of the kingdom. The basic idea of this is that you are both fully all these things in Christ and in the process of becoming fully who you are in Christ. This is how identity works in the New Testament. You are both fully all these things in Christ already and in the process of becoming fully who you are in, the, in Christ, not yet. Isaiah, you know, I delight greatly in the Lord. Um, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. These things are true. Go back to the verse in uh, Colossians. My life is now hidden with Christ in God. In, in Galatians, I have been clothed in Christ. But it's also becoming true of who we are because we are being transformed with ever-increasing glory into the image of Jesus. We are in the process of working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so not already, not only is our identity already actually positionally rooted in Christ Jesus because we are in Christ and not therefore in our performance and our pleasure and our possessions and our popularity or whatever it might be. But our identity is also rooted and grounded in the future, not in the past, not even in the present. Stick with me. This is like important. This, we'll get there. Just think about this with me for a minute. Like, so most of us, when we think about who we really are, if we think about our identity, first of all, our sense of who we are probably isn't rooted in Christ. Uh, it's probably not even rooted in heaven at all. It's, it's just rooted on earth. That's the first thing. And secondly, even if our sense of who we really are is rooted in Christ, for most of us, it's based in our past, i.e. who uh, we were. Or it's based in our present, like who we are. It's very rarely based in our future, who we are becoming. So you say to me, Neil, you know, who are you? Who are you really? And chances are I'll come up with something from the past about myself, rooted in the earth. And I'll like something like, you know, well, I was, I was pretty good at school, you know, but every single report was like, could do better. Um, you know, so I never really realized my potential. Um, and so, yeah, that's who I am. You know, never really quite good enough. That's who, that's, that's who I am. But that's not who I am now, um, let alone who I'm becoming. You know, that may be who I was at one point in my past, but it's not, it's not who I really am. These aren't the truest things about me. Or you say, okay, well, tell us something else about, um, you know, what, you, what you're really like, who you really are. 
and I don't know, I'll probably say something like, well, I'm a classic Myers-Briggs ENTJ. Um, I'm pretty command and control oriented. Uh, if you use these color profiles, I am like red, 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 uh, then red. Um, pretty much a perfectionist, uh, especially when it comes to other people. Um, pretty controlling, uh, pretty broken and angry somewhere deep down, which um, leaks out in really unhelpful and unkind ways, uh, usually to the people I love most, like my wife, my children, the people I work with. Um, I'm far too sarcastic. Uh, I'm most likely terribly uh, insecure, which I desperately try to cover up by being far too driven and uh, focused on doing and achieving and working. Um, so there, that's a little bit about me. And much as I hate to admit it, all of those things are actually true. As those of you who live with me can attest to. And that's an identity kind of rooted in my present. And I'm much better than I was, right? But all of these things are true of who I am. But are they the truest things about me? What if my identity was rooted in Christ? And not in the past, who I was. Not in the present, even, of who I am. But in the future, who I am becoming. So you ask me, you know, Neil, who are you? And then the answer becomes something like that. Do you know what? I am a son of the living God. I am a beloved child of the Father. I'm like, it's like I'm back from the dead like a billion years from now. And I'm alive and well. I've got this incredible resurrection body, which is awesome. You know, I am healed and healthy at every single part of my life. I'm totally comfortable in my own skin. I'm Christ-like in a crazy kind of unimaginable kind of way. I've finally stepped into my real self, my true self. I've not only got outer freedom and inner peace and everything else, but but I've got this inner freedom and this inner peace, and I literally live, I breathe in Christ Jesus, and I breathe out Christ Jesus. That's who I am. That's who I am. Now, just in case I've completely confused you, let's go back to the now and the not yet. On the timeline of my life, just in case you weren't sure, That's not quite who I am yet. But all of that and so much more is who I am becoming in Christ Jesus. And in your own way, shape or form, that's exactly who you're becoming too. That's who you are becoming in Christ. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say here because we could get into all kinds of trouble and get derailed very quickly. This is not, do not hear me say anything about underplaying sin, right? And, and making it sound like sin is no big deal. You know, Paul writes, what should we say? Should we carry on sinning that grace may abound? Like heaven forbid, right? I'm not saying that. I'm not therefore downplaying the consequences of sins. Nothing is going to warp your true identity nothing is going to undermine the call of god on your life in in a in a more sharp and tragic way than through sin but this framework this this way of looking at our true identity in christ of this is who you are becoming in christ actually has all kinds of implications for sin and for life and for how we do and how we don't live have a quick turn on to Ephesians chapter 4. We will get there, honestly. Um, 
For the first three chapters of Ephesians, okay, Paul goes off in the whole subject of identity. And unlike Paul, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, there's not even like a command or an imperative anywhere. All of that comes, he's like saving himself up for chapter 4. Um, and what you've got in Ephesians 1 to 3 and, three, uh, and 4 to 6 is what theologians call the in, in, indicative imperative. And so first of all, what we do is we get the indicative in chapters 1 to 3. And um, Paul's saying, just let's talk about this is who you are. This is your true identity, okay? And he drills it home, he drives it home, every single phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, for the first three chapters. And then what happens is we get the imperative, which is in chapters 4 to 6. And what that basically is, in light of who you really are, indicative, chapters 1 to 3, this now is what you should do. This now is how you should live. This now is what you shouldn't be doing. Verses chapters 4 to 6. And the idea here is that what we do and what we choose not to do actually flows out of who we really are. Which means that the things that we do to ourselves, the things that we do with our bodies, the things that we do with our hearts and our minds and our lives, they are going to flow out of either the truth about who we believe we are in Christ Jesus, from Ephesians chapters 1 to 3, or they're going to flow out of the lies that we believe about who we really are. Chapter, chapter 4 verse 1 says, uh, Paul writes, As a prisoner of the Lord then, and it goes into one of Paul's therefores, right? In, what he's saying is, in light of everything I've just said to you in chapters 1 to 3, about your truest, realist identity in Christ Jesus, now, people, I urge you, I encourage you, I exhort you to what? Chapter 4, verse 1, to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. In light of all of this, please, 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 now live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Look at this stuff, it's amazing. Now live a life worthy of the calling you've received. He doesn't have that voice. But he's basically saying live a life that lives up to all of the truest things about who you really are in Christ Jesus. And then literally from chapter 4 onwards, it's instruction after instruction after instruction after instruction, command after command after command. Verse 2, he says, do you know what? Be completely humble and gentle. Why? Because that's who you really are in Christ Jesus. That's who you really are. So be completely humble and gentle. He says, be patient. Why? Because that's who you really are. That's the truest thing about who you are. You're not impatient. You are patient because you are in Christ. He says, bear with one another in love. Why? Because that's who you are in Christ. Your life has now been hidden with Christ in God. That's who you are. So be, bear with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Why? Because that's who you are. That's what's true about you. So live out of the truest part of your being in Christ and make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And he goes on and on and on for the next three chapters. And what's Paul's first command or instruction? He says, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. He says, this is who you are in chapters 1 to 3. Now go and be who you really are, chapters 4 to 6. This is who you are really becoming, chapters 1 to 3. Now go and become everything that God has called you to be. Four to six. What Paul is saying is that we have this high and holy calling before God. Let's not waste our lives and our time on anything less. Stupid is that? I am so out of time. Just bear with me, please. Maybe this will help. Um, those of you who are married, okay, think back to your wedding day. 25 years ago, Kate and I got married. Uh, we were so young, 
because I'm only 28. Um, and she's even younger. Uh, we were so young. Uh, we were so in love. We still are. Uh, I even had hair. Um, speaking for myself, I was so immature, I didn't even know it. But when the vicar said, I now pronounce you husband and wife, what kind of... This is a rhetorical question. It's not actually one I want anyone to answer. All right? um, I'll get there on my own. Um, what kind of husband do you think I was? And the answer to that is, like, not good. Like, not even close to good. Um, don't ask Kate, please. But I would say it was probably about 10 years before I started getting vaguely adequate. She, she may say it's more like 25. Um, but at around 2 o'clock on the 10th of October, 1992, I became a husband. And I will never be less of a husband or more of a husband. I can be a good husband or a bad husband, but my status as husband is unquestioned. I am a husband to my wife. And I will spend the rest of my days learning how to become who I already am. Learning to live a a life worthy of the calling that I've received. Learning how to live up to the identity that I already have over my life. I didn't know he was going to be here this morning, but um, I'm delighted that uh, we're delighted that our eldest son is, has joined us. He's on what seems to be a permanent vacation from a university education. Um, but he's here. But I go back to thinking about when Joseph, when our eldest son was born... You know, what did we know about being parents? What did I know about being a father? And trust me, not very much. Parents should not actually, this is an aside, but parents should not be allowed to just take their children home from hospital. (laughs) Um, Social services should intervene at some point. Because I had no clue. We had no clue about parents. I had no clue about how to be a father. But I will never become any more of a father or any less of a father to Joe. My position as his father is unquestioned. I am his dad. But trust me, I will spend the rest of my life learning how to become who I already am, learning how to live a life worthy of the calling that I've received, learning how to live up to what is already true. This is a whole other way of doing identity, whether we are, whether, where we are, where the, the sense of who we are isn't rooted in the shifting sands of what we do or what we own or what other people think about us. Where who we are isn't rooted in our past, it's not even rooted in our present, it's rooted in our future, who we are becoming in Christ Jesus. And as we start to see ourselves, the way that God sees us, when we start to look at ourselves in the way that our Father in heaven looks at us, when we start to get God's eyes on our identity, if we can get there, that is a game changer for how we are going to live life and live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. When you think about who you are, what are some of the first things that come to mind? 
because you are a son. You are a daughter of the living God. You are loved by God. You are his beloved. He looks at you and he says, I am so pleased with you. I'm so proud of you. You are flipping awesome. Now go and live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Okay, I'm stopping. <laughs> right on time. Someone texting me going, get off. Lunch. It's so mean. It's so brutal. Okay. Just let that just let that sit. Just invite the Holy Spirit just to come. Uh, Father, we thank you for your presence. We ask that you whatever is you, whatever you want to embed in our hearts, will you come by your Holy Spirit and will you will you put that word and the truth of whatever is in there? in our hearts so that it bears fruit in our lives. Whatever's just kind of rubbish and nonsense, just blow it away with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.